welcome to the second episode of Estradial Illusions. I'm your host, Ian Thomas Malone. The subject of today's episode is impeachment, a topic that's been in the news quite a bit lately. This episode had originally been recorded before the bombshell news that the Mueller report had been delivered to the Justice Department had been released. The question of how much the Mueller report changes the impeachment equation remains to be seen, and we probably won't know the answer to that for a while longer. It never ends. The fact that this long-awaited document is finally out there really doesn't change all that much. The question of whether or not Donald Trump will be impeached has existed about as long as his presidency, usually for crimes related to either Russia, the Stormy Daniels campaign finance situation, or for his years of shady business dealings with the Trump Organization, which are currently being investigated by the Southern District of New York. Today we'll look at past impeachment efforts, as well as the quest to see if there's any chance that Trump could be successfully impeached in the U.S. Senate. Spoiler alert, it's not looking very good. But we'll take a look at all of the specific reasons why. Speaker Nancy Pelosi threw cold water on impeachment talk recently, noting that such an act would tear the country apart, and also that he simply wasn't worth it. Obviously, plenty of Americans, including many sitting members of Congress, feel differently. As the Democrats control the House of Representatives, the impeachment process could in theory begin at any time, as a simple up-down majority vote could send the decision to the Senate for a trial. The two-thirds majority, or 67 votes, required to convict in an impeachment trial make this discussion a fairly moot point, as the odds that any Republicans, let alone more than a dozen, would turn on the orange tyrant are close to nothing. Looking back at America's history with impeachment can show us why this path is so narrow at this point. Article 1 of the Constitution designates the power of impeachment to the House of Representatives, similar to a grand jury indictment with the Senate responsible for conducting the trial. Article 2 defines the grounds for these potential charges as bribery, treason, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. If you're confused as to what constitutes the last charges, well, you're not alone. The rationale behind granting powers to the Senate to conduct an impeachment trial are outlined by Alexander Hamilton in Federalist Papers 65 and 66. The Founding Fathers viewed impeachment not so much as strictly a criminal matter as a political one, affecting the broader population. As the favored method for removing a head of state used to be quite literally to remove their head, impeachment offered a democratic way to remove a president, with the Senate viewed as the best way to fully represent the public's interest, as opposed to the Supreme Court. By requiring a supermajority, impeachment was designed to be safeguarded from partisan politics. Hamilton makes no effort to claim that the process is perfect, but he does make a convincing argument that the method selected was the best course of action for preserving democracy against tyranny. Only two such trials of U.S. presidents have occurred, both unsuccessful against President Andrew Johnson in 1868 and President Bill Clinton, which began in late 1998 and ended in early 1999. Impeachment proceedings had begun in the House against President Richard Nixon in 1964, though he resigned before a full vote was conducted. It's widely speculated that Tricky Dick would have been the first president successfully impeached. In addition to presidential impeachments, uh, 61 other proceedings have been conducted against government officials with 17 additional Senate trials, the vast majority of which were against federal judges. We won't go into those because they're not really as political as presidential ones and it's not really all that relevant. 
Looking back at the impeachments against President Johnson, Nixon, and Clinton can give us a decent idea of the path that might befall President Trump. Unlikely as it seems, there are certain events that could trigger an exodus of support in the Senate that would be enough to send Trump back to Mar-a-Lago. But the previous impeachment attempts all point to such an event being extremely unlikely, even if the Mueller report turns up some juicy stuff. Furthermore, it seems almost impossible that such proceedings would begin before the 2020 election. Obviously, a loss by Trump would render this whole discussion moot. Let's begin with President Johnson. Andrew Johnson was selected as Abraham Lincoln's running mate in 1864 as part of the National Union Party ticket, a political party that was only in service for that single election. Johnson replaced Hannibal Hamlin, a former senator from Maine. The idea of putting Andrew Johnson on the ticket, as well as the whole National Union Party to begin with, was seen as a way to appease the War Democrats, which were members of the Democratic Party, who were in favor of continuing the war with the Confederacy as opposed to the Copperheads who favored peace. Rather than just running as a strictly partisan Republican, Lincoln wanted a national unified front of both Republicans and Democrats that could keep himself out of the political fray in the midst of the most devastating war in U.S. history. Johnson had been an effective military governor in Tennessee, basically the equivalent of martial law, he was tasked with keeping peace in a war-torn state, relative peace. Johnson was w not well-liked or well-spoken, either then or now, and was regarded as one of the worst presidents in U.S. history. His selection reflected way more of a desire to appease war Democrats by Republicans than any confidence that he would be able to lead the nation. And as soon as Abraham Lincoln was assassinated, Republicans quickly soured on the idea of having nominated a member of the opposing party to ascend to the presidency. As you can tell from post-elections, the idea of picking somebody from another party is not really one that was regarded as a very good idea and hasn't been repeated since. The big issue that congressional Republicans had with Andrew Johnson was that he had very different views on Reconstruction than Abraham Lincoln, as well as the rest of the Republican Party. As much of Johnson's cabinet had been nominated by President Lincoln before him, he came into conflict with several of them regarding the execution of Reconstruction. Chief among them was Secretary of War Edwin Stanton, who stood in the way of Johnson's control over the military in the South. Secretary of War is a position now known as Secretary of Defense, somewhat less combative. Johnson supported a quick readmission of the Confederate States back into the Union, putting him at odds with pretty much all of Lincoln's appointees. At that point, the Confederates weren't fully represented in Congress. One of the ways Republicans tried to keep President Johnson in check was to pass what's called the Tenure of Office Act. The Tenure of Office Act required Senate approval to fire any previously Senate-confirmed appointee. The Constitution gives the Senate the power of advising consent with regard to nominations, but doesn't really say anything about terminations. The Tenure of Office Act is not regarded as very good law. The Supreme Court later ruled that it was probably unconstitutional, though it was repealed in 1897 before they made any remarks about it. The law, though probably unconstitutional, was designed to protect members of the cabinet who supported Reconstruction. President Johnson defied the law and fired Secretary of War Edwin Stanton anyway, prompting a swift reaction from Congress. There were 11 articles of impeachment that passed the House, 
almost all related to the various specifics of firing Edwin Stanton. The most amusing is the 11th, which was simply bringing disgrace and ridicule to the presidency by his aforementioned words and actions. Imagine a time when a politician could be impeached for bringing disgrace and ridicule. (laughs) Of the 11 charges passed by the House, only three of them were voted on by the Senate. Article 2, which was specifically appointing Lorenzo Thomas, Secretary of War ad interim, despite the lack of vacancy in the office since the dismissal of Stanton had been invalid, as well as Article 3, appointing Lorenzo Thomas without the required advising consent of the Senate, although in an interim capacity that was on shaky ground. Not that I don't think anybody cared at that point. Senate also voted on Article 11. They literally voted on the disgrace and ridicule. It'd be fascinating if each Congress nowadays voted on disgrace and ridicule. I wonder what they would find. Or if any Republican could look at that vote with a straight face and not vote yay or aye or whatever they say. All three articles resulted in votes of 35 to 19, which was one shy of conviction. They came within one vote of successfully impeaching Andrew Johnson. There were 10 Confederate states that weren't allowed to vote because they were not represented by the Senate at that point. 10 Republicans broke ranks to support Johnson, and all nine Democratic senators voted not guilty. The consensus thinking among the Republicans that voted to acquit was basically that they were headed down a bad road. The Union was obviously in pretty rough shape after the Civil War. And the idea of impeaching a president for disgrace and ridicule was seen as preposterous even then. Very few members of Congress particularly cared that the impeachment charges they were bringing were on shaky ground. They just wanted to get rid of an unpopular president who was screwing around with their reconstruction. Andrew Johnson's first speech as vice president had been a disaster. And ever since then, they had wanted to keep him as far away from the executive branch as possible. Something that really wasn't that uncommon back then. I mean, the vice presidency has never been regarded as that important of a job until Dick Cheney came around and started acting as sort of a shadow president. But before presidents and vice presidents ran on the same ticket, your vice president was almost viewed as an enemy to begin with. The fact that Johnson wasn't seen as a statesman wasn't really disqualifying for him to be vice president, but it didn't earn him many friends in the process. So Johnson gets acquitted... Though that's pretty much the end of his relevancy as a president. He fails to receive the Democratic nomination at the 1868 convention. By then, the National Union Party was gone, which ended his short and unspectacular presidency. He retained popularity in the South for numerous Confederate pardons, including Jefferson Davis. The saga does have a few interesting tidbits as it relates to the odds that President Trump could be impeached. Johnson's firing of Secretary Stanton has a few parallels to the way that Trump dispelled with FBI Director James Comey, widely seen as an act of obstruction of justice, as he went on Lester Holt a few days later and it said that he fired him with the Russia investigation in mind. However, these parallels don't really bode well for impeachment. As we saw with Johnson's impeachment, When Congress really had to vote on it, a lot of them were uncomfortable with the idea of removing a president for firing a member of the executive branch. The FBI is intended to be impartial from partisan politics, but it is part of the executive branch. Whether or not 
Trump firing Comey was obstruction of justice is a separate question from whether Republicans are going to vote to impeach him for doing so. And there's a reason you, you don't really hear much about that in the news anymore. Then there's the obvious idea that Trump has brought a lot of disgrace and ridicule to the presidency. He does so almost every day. It's interesting if Andrew Johnson had had a Twitter account back then, if they would have impeached him for that. I think the equivalent in the 1860s of Twitter would be to stand on the sidewalk outside a public house, rambling, probably while drunk, though Trump doesn't. I don't think many would argue that Trump doesn't disgrace the presidency on a daily basis, though I doubt you're going to find many Republicans who are going to go along with impeaching him. Johnson's failed impeachment set the tone for the practice over the next hundred years. Congress generally avoided going that route, seeing it as a pursue-at-your-own-peril idea. It was definitely seen as one of those what-goes-around-comes-around type situations where a Congress controlled by one party could exact the same kind of treatment on a president. Under similar shaky grounds, let's move on to President Nixon. For those of you unfamiliar with Watergate, the whole scandal occurred when five operatives broke into the Democratic National Committee headquarters at the Watergate Hotel in D.C. Numerous top Nixon officials who were part of the Committee to Re-elect the President, or the oddly appropriate Creep, orchestrated the planning and the early cover-up including E. Howard Hunt Jr., who was a former CIA operative, and G. Gordon Liddy, who was a White House operative. The crew that organized Watergate was preceded by what was known as the White House Plumbers, which was a unit within the White House designed to stop leaks that occurred in the wake of the release of the Pentagon Papers, which were documents that basically outlined all of the government misconduct in the Vietnam War over the course of the preceding 20 years. If you've heard of Nixon's Dirty Tricksters, they basically evolved out of the idea that President Nixon was very paranoid about his enemies using nefarious schemes to undermine him. So naturally, he thought the appropriate response was to organize his own nefarious group. Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein have two great books on this subject, All the President's Men, which follows the uncovering of Watergate, and The Final Days, which covers Nixon's impeachment and the buildup to all of that. Watergate was traced back to the White House, through money payments that were orchestrated to Hunt, Liddy, and the Five Burglars by a man named Tony Ulaksiewicz. I hope I pronounced that right. The case against Nixon himself was mainly related to obstruction of justice that also involved his chief of staff, John Haldeman, White House domestic affairs advisors, John Ehrlichman, as well as Mitchell and Dean, among others. Dean was the first to turn on Nixon, implicating himself, before the existence of a taping system was revealed by Alexander Butterfield. The tapes are pretty much what did Nixon in in the end. There were two huge bombshells revealed by the tapes. One was an implication that Nixon wanted the CIA to interfere with the FBI's investigation of Watergate, as well as an 18-and-a-half-minute gap on one of the tapes that was three days after the break-in. Even in the pre-CSI forensic days, the 18-and-a-half-minute gap was deemed highly suspicious and m almost certainly not caused by human error. The idea of a taping system in a place as important as the White House is something that really kind of baffles the mind decades later in the age of paranoia. Nixon carried on the tradition established by President Lyndon Johnson, who found the tapes useful for crafting his memoirs. The downside of a taping system, though, is that it, in addition to capturing things that might be useful for books, they had also captured 
the cover-up scheme that doomed his presidency. Nixon's failure to destroy the tapes is probably the greatest political blunder committed by a sitting president. And as such, he's the only president who resigned because he was caught literally red-handed. The House Judiciary was tasked with unraveling the Watergate scandal as it was uh, covered in the media. The Judiciary Committee, as well as the Senate Select Committee on Presidential Campaign Activities, were the ones who gathered a lot of the witnesses. Back at a time when bringing a witness in front of Congress actually revealed useful information, Dean and Butterfield basically sunk Nixon, implicating themselves in the scandals and pointing to Nixon's then-secret taping system. Also on the trail was special counsel Archibald Cox, who had been appointed by Elliot Richardson after his confirmation in 1973. Once the taping system was discovered, Cox subpoenaed the tapes, causing a standoff that resulted in Nixon ordering Richardson to fire Cox, which he refused to do, resulting in what's known as the Saturday Night Massacre, where Nixon fired Richardson as well as Deputy Attorney General William Ruckelshaus. Solicitor General Robert Bork ended up carrying out the termination, though he later appointed Leon Jaworski as the new special counsel. The fight for the tapes went all the way up to the Supreme Court, where a unanimous ruling of 8-0 to forced Nixon to cough up the tapes. The main defense of withholding the tapes came from the idea of executive privilege, something Trump lawyers have used quite a bit lately, or tried to use. Supreme Court didn't buy it. If you've ever heard of filing a Freedom of Information Act request, typically speaking, the courts tell the executive branch to hand over as much of their planning material as possible and emails, anything considered work product. The idea of executive privilege doesn't really carry much water in the legal system. What's also important to know about Watergate is similar to the Mueller investigation. The whole process was a media spectacle for two years. They covered it ad nauseum. And that's really where the existence of the tapes hurt Nixon the most. If there hadn't been any tapes, then there wouldn't have been any fight for the tapes, and there wouldn't have been all this media fodder for them to continue covering the story for months on end, eroding his popular support. If you read Woodward and Bernstein's book, The Final Days, they talk a lot about the failures of the White House comm staff to adequately combat the negative press they were receiving. Part of this was probably due to the fact that the chief of staff at the time was a man named General Alexander Haig, who was hardly a political operative and more of a process man than somebody who was thinking two steps ahead of the media. Nixon also didn't have the benefit of a news outlet like Fox News, which was dedicated to protecting him around the clock. After the White House lost the long legal battle over concealing the tapes, the smoking gun tape that hinted at Nixon using the CIA to screw with the FBI was essentially the one that did him in, proving that he had misled the American people on the timeline of Watergate for years. His popular support eroded considerably, and for the first time, a conviction in the Senate started to look like something that was a near certainty. A group of Republican leadership in the Senate, among them Barry Goldwater, came into the White House and essentially told him a few days before he resigned that he had no greater than 15 votes, well short of the 33 needed to save him. It remains an open question what would have happened if Nixon had actually forced the impeachment trial to happen. An impeachment trial would have been at least four months away, giving senators plenty of time to change their mind as well as public opinion. I'm not saying he wouldn't have been impeached, but a lot of these decisions are made as snapshots in time. If you give people time to rethink their decisions, we just don't know what would have happened. It's interesting to speculate. 
You've probably heard the phrase, it's not the crime, but the cover-up, referring to what did Nixon in. Even after decades of coverage of Watergate, there hasn't been anything that explicitly linked Nixon to coordinating the Watergate scandal or ordering it. He did, however, act extensively toward paying off the burglars and otherwise trying to prevent any tidbits of Watergate from coming out. The idea of what did the president know and when did he know it also played a major factor in his erosion of Republican support. As Nixon constantly provided to the American people a very misleading picture of his idea, his, of his understanding of the events as they unfolded, Nixon knew about Watergate almost immediately after it happened, and the tapes proved that he was full of shit. So before Nixon could be convicted in the Senate, he resigns, handing the presidency to President Ford. If you're interested in learning more about Watergate, I highly recommend going to the Nixon Presidential Library in Yorba Linda. You can actually listen to the 18 and a half minute gap in the tapes, and you can see for yourself what the tampering sounds like. The Nixon Library also does a wonderful Christmas train exhibit during the holidays. It's a fun place to visit. I live about half an hour away from there, and I've been a few times. It's always kind of weird when the transgender woman walks into a Republican presidential library, but it's always a fun time. It's cheap if you have a student discount. It's really probably the most fascinating political scandal in American history. I've read several books on the subject, and it never really gets old. The incompetence of the White House staff really did them in in terms of support from their own party. There are obvious parallels to the Trump situation with regard to Nixon aides turning on him, though the real kicker is the absence of something like the smoking gun tape, which implicates the president beyond any reasonable doubt. That idea really can't be understated enough. Over the course of the American presidency, we've never had any president resign other than Nixon. The thing that caused that to happen was the idea that he had his crimes on tape, on his own tapes. If you wonder why impeachment is unlikely, you don't need to look any further than the idea that that is the thing that got him. Not two committees and a special prosecutor after him. No, it was one of his aides saying, oh yeah, we have these tapes. And even beyond that, it was a case of him not going out in the backyard and burning him. There are obvious parallels between the president's relationships with their special counsels. Though Trump has not explicitly ordered the termination of Robert Mueller, he did reportedly attempt to, and Nixon frequently undercut the legitimacy of the special counsel, something that Trump does on a daily basis, though obviously we didn't have Twitter back then either. It would have been fascinating to see a president like Nixon behaving, how he would behave on Twitter. I am not a crook. Yeah, it's funny if they brought disgrace and ridicule to the presidency charges up on him like they did with Johnson. You know, it's a situation where he had to go up and tell the American people he wasn't a crook. That's always something that, you know, it's always great when a president has to go out and do that. Moving on to President Clinton. Now, the whole Clinton impeachment proceeding is widely regarded as a disaster for the Republicans mainly because of the grounds that they chose to pursue impeachment on, were fairly shaky to begin with. All the investigations into the Clintons originally began with Whitewater. Whitewater was supposed to be a resort community out in Arkansas, and the project was developed by Clinton friends James and Susan McDougall. Fortunately, I, you can't see a lot of instances where anybody would refer to it as Whitewatergate. 
though gate as a suffix has been added to pretty much every scandal since Watergate happened. James McDougall did get indicted over questionable business transactions related to potential loan fraud before the 1992 election, though he was acquitted. The intensity over the Clinton scandals began to escalate when there were also controversies related to terminations in the White House travel office related to nepotism, as well as the 1993 suicide of Deputy White House Counsel Vince Foster, who had at that point handled much of the Whitewater-related paperwork. The Clintons were cleared of wrongdoing in all of these cases, though you'll find a lot of right-wing conspiracy theorists who will draw large maps connecting all of it together. Unrelated to all of these scandals was the Paula Jones case. Paula Jones sued Clinton for alleged sexual harassment that occurred while he was governor of Arkansas. There was an event that she was working as a secretary for. According to her, an Arkansas state trooper organized a rendezvous in a hotel room where Clinton asked Paula Jones for sex, and she said no. Obviously, all of this is unverified. The Supreme Court ruled that the case could go forward while Clinton was serving as president. In tandem to all of this was Clinton's affair with White House staffer Monica Lewinsky, who was later transferred to the Pentagon. And after that, she left for a job for the private sector that was organized with help from President Clinton. Pentagon staffer Linda Tripp starts recording conversations she had had with Lewinsky, passing them on to Paula Jones's lawyers. Lewinsky files a false affidavit in the case, believed to be encouraged by Clinton himself. Special Prosecutor Ken Starr's team believed that Clinton also pressured his secretary, Betty Curie, into lying as well. Curie is believed to have helped coordinate some of the rendezvous between... Lewinsky and Clinton, as it would have been pretty difficult at the time to have a low-ranking White House staffer come into the Oval Office. Most of their rendezvous happened at the weekends when the offices were practically empty. There was also a track record of gifts between Monica Lewinsky and President Clinton, as well as the efforts to help her find employment elsewhere. President Clinton denies the affair with Monica Lewinsky in sworn deposition, which set up the perjury charges. Ken Starr submits his report to Congress, as well as the American people simultaneously, which at the time was following special prosecutor guidelines, which have since expired, pretty much expired because of Ken Starr's actions. The House Judiciary declines to conduct any follow-up investigations, unlike the House Judiciary Committee during the Nixon administration, which was very thorough. Instead, they opted straight for impeachment, which was regarded as a very partisan process. President Clinton earned a lot of eye rolls for his grand jury testimony, at which point he used the phrase, depends on what the meaning of the word is, is, regarding his relationship with Monica Lewinsky. It's not really much of a defense when you're resorting to semantic arguments over the meaning of a word, a two-letter word. There was also a semantic argument over what constitutes sexual relations, There was a Clinton defense that revolved around the idea that he hadn't perjured himself because he'd only received oral sex. He hadn't actually performed any sexual act. This case differed from President Nixon's in the sense that the public increasingly viewed Ken Starr's special counsel as conducting a witch hunt, spending $70 million on an investigation that only resulted in perjury and obstruction of justice charges whereas Archibald Cox and Leon Jaworski were both highly respected. Starr wasn't actually the first choice to be special counsel, but he had been appointed by a three-judge panel. After original appointment, Robert Fisk was rejected after being appointed by the Attorney General Janet Reno at the time, which was in violation of the now-expired Ethics of Government Act. We use the terms independent counsel and special prosecutor and special counsel all interchangeably. 
But the Office of the Independent Counsel has been replaced with the Office of the Special Counsel, which is now appointed by the Attorney General, or a person acting as the Attorney General, as was the case when Rod Rosenstein appointed Robert Mueller. There are similarities to President Nixon's case in the sense that President Clinton also repeatedly lied to the American people, at one point saying, I did not have sexual relations with that woman, which was later proved to be verifiably false after Monica Lewinsky turned over the infamous blue dress covered with his semen. Two out of the four articles that were brought by the House passed related to perjury and obstruction of justice. There was an additional account of perjury that failed and one abuse of power charge that also failed. It'd be interesting to see how that one would do in today's day and age as the whole notion of the power imbalance between the president of the United States and a White House intern was something that wasn't really discussed that much. Although, I mean, looking back on it, it's hard to see how. All 45 Senate Democrats voted no on both charges. 10 Republicans voted no on perjury and five on obstruction. Current Republican Senator Susan Collins of Maine voted not guilty on both charges. Current sitting Alabama Senator Richard Shelby voted not guilty just on the perjury charge. There are five Republican senators who are still in office who voted guilty on both charges. Senate Majority Leaders Mitch McConnell of Kentucky, Senator Jerry Moran of Kansas, Mike Crapo of Idaho, Mike Enzi of Wyoming, and Chuck Grassley of Iowa. Also interesting to note is that Alaska Senator Lisa Murkowski's father, Frank Murkowski, who was senator at the time, voted guilty on both charges. It's also interesting to note that at the time, Lindsey Graham now senator from South Carolina and current head of the Senate Judiciary Committee, was one of the staunchest supporters of impeachment. It'd be interesting to see how he feels nowadays. I highly doubt he wants to go down the impeachment route again, seeing as it didn't work out so well the first time. The aftermath of the trial was largely regarded as a disaster for the Republicans. The charges of impeachment had been brought up in 1998 during a lame duck period after the Republicans had lost seats in the House running on impeachment. It was a mixed bag for President Clinton. His job approval went up, but people, you know, rather unexpectedly started to question his moral character. The Democrats again gained seats in 2000, though they lost the presidency, obviously, under controversial circumstances. The biggest parallel between President Clinton's situation and President Trump's is the fact that sex played a big role in both cases. This, again, really doesn't bode well for Trump's impeachment. I think you could look at the facts and come to the conclusion that President Clinton had, in fact, perjured himself by denying his relationship with Lewinsky. And the idea that he had interfered with her testimony and affidavit is also something that a reasonable person could look at and say, yeah, there were probably some nefarious actions committed. And yet, if you look at whether or not that's grounds to remove a sitting president, I think a lot of people can agree that Receiving a blowjob while very coarse is really not what we want to see as an impeachable offense. Questions of moral character and just morality in general have an interesting relationship with politicians. Obviously, a lot of them try to pretend like they're huge Bible supporters and that they live the words of Jesus and try to be righteous, morally upstanding citizens. But the American people have consistently looked at that and decided that it's not something they're that concerned about. As it relates to campaign finance related to Stormy Daniels, it doesn't seem likely that Republicans are going to get behind the idea that we should remove President Trump just because he cheated on his wife. 
I don't think Republicans are going to get behind the idea that we should impeach Trump because he had an affair with a porn star. It is interesting to note how lying to the American people was something that was devastating for President Nixon, but not so much for President Clinton. Again, the circumstances of the lying were very different, as well as the notion of the sort of slow drip of the Watergate-related controversies. Again, the American people didn't really have much of an appetite for Ken Starr's fishing expedition. Began with a potential real estate fraud and ended up with a unfortunate case of fellatio. If you hear people saying that they think it's likely that President Trump will be impeached, the question you must ask them in every case is, where are the votes? You need 20 Republican votes to convict President Trump. The House of Representatives can invoke an impeachment trial, but unless there's any path that shows 20 Republican votes to convict, such an endeavor is, quite frankly, it is a waste of time, as Speaker Pelosi said. It's not going to work, and without bipartisan support, the only thing that's going to happen is that Trump supporters are going to become enraged, and they'll show up to vote in larger numbers. The biggest issue hurting impeachment right now is that President Trump is very popular in the Republican Party. A lot of polling shows his Republican support as north of 90%. Unless that takes a sharp, sharp turn, and I'm talking like 50 or 60 points, impeachment is going to be pretty moot. The question of what evidence the Mueller report could bring that would really change the game on impeachment is certainly an open question. Nobody wants to prejudge that. But I mean, you've, you've really got to wonder if even, let's say, if the P-tape shows up, is that really going to really change anything? I mean, if it took, if it took Nixon on tape using the CIA to do his bidding, it would pretty much take Trump on tape with Putin talking about payoffs for campaign support to really change the dynamic in any meaningful way. Obviously, the public hasn't seen the Mueller report yet, but if Attorney General Barr's letter is any indication, there's probably not some massive smoking gun there of the same magnitude as the Nixon tape. There's probably no greater example of how hard it is to sway Republican support than the situation with Brett Kavanaugh. While Kavanaugh was confirmed by a small margin, there wasn't really ever any doubt that he was going to get upwards of 48 votes in the from the Republicans. And I hate how I hate how the Kavanaugh hearing was constantly framed as whether or not there was evidence to convict him and innocent until proven guilty. That would be true in a criminal trial, but that was this was a job interview. After hearing his whiny testimony where he displayed no less than 15 distinct hysterical emotions, yelling, screaming, things that no that no female nominee would ever survive challenging the senators asking them if they were drunks i like beer i mean it, it it's really not that hard to look at that situation and say to yourself gee i don't know i don't know if the accusations are are fair or not there's there's not a ton of evidence christine blasey ford's testimony was very compelling obviously the situations are by design, short on corroborating evidence. I don't really know what she could have supplied from 30 years ago that would have really swayed votes, but the fact remains the Republicans never really wavered as to whether or not this hysterical, deranged man should be given a lifetime appointment on America's highest court. The Republicans really never wavered on that idea. They thought it was a great idea. So that kind of situation, you look at an impeachment and you think to yourself... Gee, what would it take to get him impeached? The answer is it's tough. 
It seems likely that if the Democrats choose to go down that route, they'll do it almost unanimously. There are 45 Democrats in the Senate, plus two independents, Angus King of Maine and Bernie Sanders of Vermont, who caucus with the Democrats. But as far as the 47 of them go, it would be almost certainly that they'd all vote guilty. The two senators that I think about are Joe Manchin of West Virginia, who was the one Democrat to cross over and support Brett Kavanaugh. There's also Doug Jones of Alabama, who faces probably the hardest re-election of any senator for the 2020 election. But Doug Jones hasn't really broken from the Democratic ranks very often. So if it came down to impeachment, I imagine he would probably vote to convict, depending on what the charges are. So that leaves us with 53 Republicans who could potentially vote for impeachment, as unlikely as it seems. Where do we find the votes? Well, let's just assume for a second that Trump's polling numbers do plummet. Plummet to the point where people need to start thinking about impeachment as a way to preserve their own political futures, which is really all they care about to begin with. Even with all of that to consider... Uh, it makes sense to probably eliminate most of the leadership from being likely to convict, even though Mike Krapow and Mitch McConnell voted to impeach Bill Clinton for sex-based offenses. That also probably takes Joni Erst, Mike Lee, Todd Young, John Brasco, and Roy Blunt, as well as President Pro Tempore, Chuck Grassley, out of consideration for impeachment brings us down to 44 who may vote. There are 33 seats up for grabs in the 2020 elections, as well as a special election to fill to permanently fill Senator John McCain's seat, currently being held by Martha McSally, who lost to Arizona's other senator, Kirsten Cinema, in a race to replace Jeff Flake. It's hard to imagine even Jeff Flake, who never never feared going on the Sunday morning talk shows or on one of his long Senate soliloquies on all the ways that Trump said mean things. But when it came to votes, votes that mattered, Jeff Flake was there for Trump 80-plus percent of the time. He never met a difficult vote for Trump that he didn't want to cast. It's people like Flake that really make impeachment seem impossible because they'll talk ad nauseum about how awful this man is, how he's ruining our democracy. And would he would would Jeff Flake vote to impeach Trump? I don't think so. The senators who are up for re-election in 2020 are interesting to look at. Obviously, a lot of them need Trump's support at this point to get past their primary voters. There are 22 seats being defended by Republicans, only 12 for Democrats, which makes the map far more favorable for Democrats. The 2018 Senate map was historically bad for Democrats explains how the Republicans held the Senate, even though they lost 40-plus seats in the House. Recently, 12 senators voted against Trump's emergency wall declaration, where he declared a national emergency in an attempt to bypass Congress's power of the purse to fund his long-awaited border wall, which will never be built. Among them are Lamar Alexander, Roy Blunt, Susan Collins, Mike Lee, Jerry Moran, Lisa Murkowski, Rand Paul, Rob Portman, Mitt Romney, Marco Rubio, Pat Toomey, and Roger Wicker. Opposition to things like Trump's wall are sort of where we look at the the cracks in his potential impeachment defense. It's easy to see somebody like Mitt Romney voting against him. That's probably his sort of Mr. Smith comes to Washington moment that he has long fantasized about ever since he gave that speech denouncing Trump back in 2016. But then there's the Marco Rubios and the Rand Pauls of the world to have been 
by and large pretty strong allies of his. Lamar Alexander of Tennessee is retiring, so his vote is one that wouldn't really be impacted by future political considerations. There are also eight senators who opposed Trump in 2016 who are still in the Senate. Cory Gardner, Susan Collins, Rob Portman, Ben Sass, Lisa Murkowski, Dan Sullivan, Lindsey Graham, and Mike Lee. Lindsey Graham has recently become one of the staunchest pro-Trump defenders, even though he was a member of the House during Bill Clinton's impeachment, staunchly supporting his conviction, but it seems almost impossible that Lindsey Graham would repeat the same behavior for President Trump. I bring up the senators who opposed the Wall Declaration as well as the ones who opposed him in 2016, essentially to show how few Republicans have defied him in any meaningful way. And you can argue that opposing the Wall Declaration isn't really that meaningful since there aren't enough senators to oppose a veto. Where do we find the votes? If President Trump's going to be impeached, they need to come from somewhere. As of right now, there really isn't any chance he's going to be impeached. The numbers of Republican senators who have opposed him in, meaning, in any meaningful way has never really numbered higher than 10. If you look at the health care vote, it took Lisa Murkowski, Susan Collins, and John McCain to scuttle the idea of skinny repeal. And Susan Collins voted not guilty for Bill Clinton, so she's not going to be just somebody who decides that she wants to get rid of President Trump because she thinks it'll save her chances in Maine. The votes simply aren't there. And looking at President Johnson and President Nixon and President Clinton, none of those paths can really be repeated to a point where they're going to get to a Trump resignation or a Trump impeachment unless there's some kind of just overwhelming smoking gun that not only changes Congress's mind, but more importantly, the American people's mind. The aftermath of the Clinton impeachment was this bloodied partisan mess where every conservative publication was out to get him, and he had cable news just thriving on impeachment talks, encouraging people to go to partisans' extremes at every turn. I think there's a good chance we will never see a successful impeachment trial conducted in American history for the rest of time un until the zombie apocalypse or something. You can't even really list public support as the number one factor. Obviously, it's necessary, but as is the case with President Johnson, as fair as it is to look at something that happened in the 1860s and try to apply it to current politics, but he didn't have the American people on his side, and still the Senate looked at that and said, gee, this is an area, I I'm not sure this is a road we want to go down. I mean, there's a reason we have elections every four years. If the country decides that it doesn't like the president, getting rid of them via impeachment has never been the method that we've decided we've wanted to use. Instead, we go out and vote. And unfortunately, there's plenty of Republicans out there who love Trump and want him to be impeached by token of the fact that they know it's going to fail and they know it's going to bolster their support. Polling has tried to gauge whether it, impeachment is popular with independents. I mean, finding true independents, that is people who could vote either way, they're almost like a mythical figure. It's hard to really determine or if people just don't really want to say what their political views really are. I know the Mueller report has just been delivered to the Justice Department and nobody's seen it yet. So while it seems a little unfair to prejudge its findings before they're actually released, it's fairly safe to say that impeachment as we know it is dead. The Democrats are not going to be able to successfully impeach Trump over Russia collusion, and they're certainly not going to be able to impeach him over obstruction of justice. I know people are anxiously awaiting the report that doesn't explicitly exonerate him for obstruction, but 
The Republicans are just simply not going to follow that path. They're not going to impeach Trump for firing James Comey or for screwing around with the Mueller investigation if there wasn't any underlying Russia collusion. The media is undoubtedly going to continue to speculate on obstruction of justice, but it's really a moot point. It's not going to go anywhere. And the odds that 20 Republicans are going to get on board with anything related to impeachment over the Mueller report is just pie in the sky. It's not going to happen. I know a lot of us were waiting for the Mueller report, thinking there was going to be some smoking gun, but it sure doesn't look like he found one. I apologize if you tuned into this episode hoping that I would draw some great map to impeachment. The important thing is not to try and make some outlandish reach, but to look at the people who really want impeachment to happen and ask them, how do you think this is possibly going to happen? Because in order for it to happen, we need evidence that we don't have now, we need it to be so clear and present that even the biggest partisans of the world, say for like the Sean Hannity's or the Laura Ingram's and the Breitbart and all of, you know, that fringe stuff, for everybody to just look at that and say, this guy is an existential threat to American democracy and he must be removed. Because all the stuff that the Southern District is investigating, that's not going to get him impeached. Republicans can just look at that and say, this didn't happen while he was in office. Sure, he made shady business dealings with Saudi Arabia, Russia, plenty of other countries. Who cares? Didn't happen while he was in office. You need impeachment evidence that can withstand the who cares defense. Because Republicans can just look at all sorts of things, say, gee, sure that's bad, but is it worth getting rid of him, aka is it worth sacrificing my political future? So until his polling drops, and unless there's some great Mueller bombshell, I mean, you can already see it in the way that cable news coverage is encouraging people that, gee, maybe the Mueller report won't have a smoking gun. Maybe there won't be this tape that solves all the issues. And the idea of tapering expectations is, is, is frustrating for so many people, myself included. I would love to see Trump impeached. I, I know there's people out there who say, well, gee, that makes you a partisan and maybe you shouldn't be doing this. And to them, I say, you know what, fine. If you don't like my impeachment talk, you don't have to listen to my podcast. As much as I want to see him impeached, I just don't, I, d I don't see an environment where that's actually going to happen. And for all the books that I've read about impeachment, in addition to the Woodward and Bernstein books, I recommend Jeffrey Tubin's A Vast Conspiracy chronicles all of the Clinton scandals that, that built up to his impeachment. Part of the reason that impeachment is so fascinating is that it's, it's seemingly the ultimate partisan weapon. If you hate the opposing party's president and you're in control of Congress, if you're in control of the House of Representatives, you can impeach him and put a stain on his legacy, or hers eventually. It's this taboo thing that people want to fantasize about, but they don't want to look at their spouse in bed and say, I really want to try this thing. I want to try this out. I want to see how it feels to put the leader of the free world through the ringer. They're afraid that what goes around comes around. But that ball's been kind of set in motion, 20 years ago when they did the same thing to Bill Clinton. So I think the odds that President Trump is impeached before 2020 are next to nothing. It'll be interesting to see what happens if he does get reelected, because it seems fairly unlikely that the House will flip back to the Republicans anytime soon, leading to the possibility that they can begin impeachment proceedings at any point. Obviously, the various committees in the House are doing investigations into the president's conduct. They'll undoubtedly turn up things that, that can be used to frame impeachment, but it remains to be seen if any of that will produce evidence that will garner bipartisan support. 
I wish I had some juicy map to impeachment. I looked at this stuff. I looked at the numbers. And I could really, as of right now, I can pretty much only cite Mitt Romney as a Republican senator that would really just love to impeach Donald Trump. And that number, they say one is the loneliest number, but 47 plus one is still only 48. Need to get to 67. And with this current map, they're never going to get there. Will President Trump be impeached? I hope so. Is there any chance in hell that he's actually going to be impeached? Probably not. And that does it for this week. Sorry to end on such a downer. I really wanted a a climactic, yeah, we're going to get Trump. But I I worked on this for a long time, and I just didn't see it. Next week, we're going to switch gears again and talk about Sega, the decline of the great 90s video game company. Got a great guest coming on to talk about how they left the console market. Really looking forward to it. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening.